you're my first guest. All right, thank you. I know, you're the first person I thought of and you have kind of inspired this podcast. Um, I guess um, uh, if you're ready, we can just jump right in, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, hello and welcome to um, first interview um, of Inspiration Practice. Uh, which is a blog and podcast exploring how artists and writers connect to inspiration and maintain practices that move them to continue to make creative work. Um, this is a topic that's fascinating to me because um, I like to um, hear about how people who are successfully stayed engaged in creative practice have done it. And I'm often eagerly trying to find ways to keep myself motivated and, and creating. Um, I'm Derek Dankla. I'll be the host for this um, episode. And my guest today is uh, artist and good friend, uh, Tatfu Tan. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Great. Um, Tatfu, I'll briefly introduce Tatfu. He um, is an artist who collaborates with the public on issues related to ecology, uh, sustainability, and healthy living. Um, and I met him. Uh, collaborating on one of his projects for um, a 2010 installation called Farm City, where he did an iteration of his uh, SOS project, which was um, one of his ecological trilogy pieces from the Sustainable Organic Stewardship Project. And it was just one of many things. And he did a farm bicycle as part of our project together. Um, and his work, like the one I just described, uh, is project-based, ephemeral, experiential, educational, and usually a lot of fun. <laughs> so, um, and, uh, you know, dealing with a very heavy topic, he often brings a lot of levity and joy to it, which I really appreciate because oftentimes in the ecological movement or ecological arts, it's, there's an emphasis on the impacts of climate change, which are obviously not so jolly as opposed to <laughs> the small things that we can do to, to uh, resist um, the uh, planet slipping into greater dysfunction as well as our own health. Um, anyway, so I invited Ted Fu to join me in this dialogue uh, because he's actually been a great inspiration to me um, about thinking about the connection between inspiration and practice. And um, I, um, I thought maybe I'll just start with a, a preliminary question that's, um, you know, a lot, a lot of times they, when they have a the b-roll for interviews to get people comfortable they'll they'll ask the person what did you have for breakfast um you know and i think it's an interesting question just in terms of um how one starts your your day so um more expansive than breakfast what is the typical uh, way that your day begins right um yeah so i wake up when i wake up which is early um i think people had a default connotation of artists waking up late right like uh, or, or like doing things late at night but i wake up really early sometimes 3 a.m sometimes 6 the latest um and then um i usually had breakfast of oatmeal or or like very nice toast um that's about it and if not then i will not have that like today i, I ran out of uh, those stuff so yeah so no breakfast today Hmm. And what happens and what what did what you say your your um, your daily practice is um, after that? Um. Yep. So uh, 
if if I am a good boy, I will do all the meditation and the yoga first. But sometimes I'm not so good. But I like to do the thing that inspire me first, the first thing in the morning. So if I'm reading a book, and the book is very tasty, juicy, I will continue reading the book in the morning, the first thing in the morning, or whatever research that I have to do, I have to do it. The, the thing that calls you the most, you do it first, because for me, uh, the, the first five hours is the most, uh, my battery is up there, you know, like I am 100% in my concentration, I can do anything that I want, but after that, my energy level goes down, you know, I get lethargic. So I'll do the most thing that, the thing that inspire me on that day first, mm. and then I will, have to work to make money. So I do graphic design. Then I will do the client stuff second because I need to, you know, I need to keep it up. If not, the, the work will pile up and uh, it won't be manageable. So that will be my second priority. And then of course, in my third priority is food. So be, even when I'm doing my work, I have to prepare like cutting the food or like preparing the food or pre-prepping the food for lunch and dinner and stuff like that. So that's basically my day. Mm. And so you give your first and best brain to your art and your second and lethargic brain to your clients. Um, hopefully yeah. they're not, hopefully they're not listening to this podcast, but I've seen I, your, all, I think they all supported me because they know this is my practice because they want to support an artist's work. Yes. And, and I think that's why they, they supported me. I think they know like this is what they are getting into, but they always right. get good result from what I do with them. So it's not that I'm, I didn't do good result, but it's just that the, the, the fresh brain need to find something new, you know, like the design stuff, I can do it like with like half closed eye, you know what I mean? Like I've been doing it so uh, long. It, it comes naturally. I'm not struggling with it. You know, it's something that, comes, all right. you know, so, that's interesting. That's, and I think I've, I've seen your graphic design work, which also forms part of your work. And it's, um, it's, it's a, you know, it's amazing that that's, you know, your second brain, but you know, it, it relates to, um, uh, a book that I, I'm very intrigued with by a, a, an economist. I'm going to screw up his name, but I think it's Daniel Kanahara who wrote this book called thinking fast, think, thinking slow. And he says that our slow brain is our contemplative, um, conceptual brain that takes its time. And our fast brain is our instinctual brain that, um, makes these rapid decisions, um, sometimes without us even detecting them. And, some, and over time, a skill that we've developed over many years um, switches from the slow brain to the fast brain. That's why we you know, um, you know, do things over and over again and, and practice and educate ourselves. So it sounds like maybe your, your graphic design is in your, in your fast brain. Yeah, it, it, it comes easier. So I, the things that comes harder, I'll do it first because if not, then I get frustrated. You know, like, uh, like mm. now I'm learning Sanskrit and, uh, and that is hard for me. So I have to do it first, you know, like it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a hard climb. I need to climb the big mountain. So I have to like do it first thing in the morning. And um, what inspires you to start um, a, a creative project uh, or continue work on one? Uh, curiosity. Mm. Uh, usually I'm curious about a certain topic in life and then I would go down the rabbit hole, researching it, reading it, practicing it, and then maybe something is funny or something that is intriguing, then I'll make it into a, into art project. Mm. And what, um, what would you say um, the, the difference for you is uh, between um, your routines and your habits and your practice or yeah. your, or your rituals? Right. Yeah. I think they're all collapsed into one uh, kind of seamless 
lives or lifestyle. Um, so I can't really differentiate what is my artwork and what is my life and what mm -hmm. is like the the you know the the artist and the art is being collapsed. You know, there's no separation between like my private life and this is my art life and things like that. So it's kind of like seamlessly interwoven because I use art as a way to figure out what life is. So it's mm. like so I'm not seeing it as a separate thing that I work on, like a job, you know. Mm. So, uh, so they are all kind of together. Mm. And what do you see as the um, your work uh, is um, deeply in, in, invested and in in and in investigating um, spiritual practices? So especially lately. Um, and what do you see the connection between your art practice and your own personal spiritual practice to be? Yeah, um, as I said earlier, that my art practice is to investigate what life is all about. So investigating spirituality is same as investigating the rest of my art that I was investigating beforehand, like climate change and uh, uh, food sovereignty and, and other things. So it's basically figuring out like, you know, the big question, who we are, why we are here, where we are going and all this thing. And then of course, by investigating, I go down the rabbit hole of, of you know, art and illuminated manuscript that you see in my background and, mm -hmm. and poetry, like what you are doing and, and things like that, that are like, you know, nice. And you know, I want to, I want to experience all of them so that that makes my life happy, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and then of course, be able to explore different tradition that's even better because then i can see different perspective in different way people uh, see their life and their connection with other people in different parts of the world in different time period you know so i'm like almost uh you know jumping to time and time to different position in 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 geographically so i'm almost like time travel you know Mm -hmm. putting my eyes into other people's minds and like reading their work back then imagining like what's their worldview is and compared to our worldview right now so yeah those things just intrigue me that's why i'm studying like ancient language like sanskrit and are yeah your your work is is deeply tied up in um investigating the meaning of of all sorts of um terms and spiritual terms that often people have used in an offhand manner and and I think that's, that's, is that what led you to uh, the study of Sanskrit? Um, yes, because uh, of uh, going back to my art. So one of my art practice uh, is, is called New Earth and it's about uh, trying to survive physically. And um, be, when, when we have, uh, you know, the collapse of society and things like that. So I went to uh, survival training and stuff like that. Um, after that particular practices I wanted to survive spiritually that leads to my spiritual pursuit and um, and that's what uh, leads to investigating different uh, tradition and one of the tradition that calls me the most doesn't mean that it's the best but calls to me the most is the Advaita Vedanta the non-dual philosophy and it is um, it has a similar kind of concept not 100% same but kind of similar with like zen and zokchen and uh, sufism and and all those stuff so i'm exploring that kind kind of a invincible thread between all these different tradition mm. and like Baita is the is the clearest to me it's like it's like clear it's like a spotlight 
it's just super clear to me. Like the way they word it, it's like super clear. Like I can understand it mm. uh, compared to other traditions. So because of that, I want to uh, learn it, you know, firsthand from the from the words, no, the original text, you know, not not the translation. Of course, the translation is great, but if I could, you know, you know, uh, devour the original text would be amazing. So that's why it leads me to like, try to learn uh, Sanskrit. Do you find um, that there are some magical qualities in in the words that is part of your investigation? Uh, I don't know whether it's magical or not. Uh, apparently, some tradition says that you not know, the word has some magical power to it. But I do say uh, the language did call to me in some way, and it mm -hmm. comes to me in a in an amazing way. Like things that I'm searching, it comes to me like easily, and opportunity shows up easily to me to learn the language. So in some way, my inspiration is also be able to open my eyes and mind to opportunities that comes to me easily. It's almost like, here, this is your next step to follow if you are curious about this thing. And then mm -hmm. if you take that step, another step just open up, you know, it's like a spot like here, this you should go, things like that. So the in some way, the language put me in a certain way that says here, after you learn this class, you should go to the next class that's showing you the way that you should, you should take this one. And then the next one shows up again. So it's mm -hmm. almost in some way, like uh, if, if I am being metaphysical, I would say like the, the, the Devi of uh, Devanagari, you know, like the, the goddess of Devanagari is showing the path, you know, like go through this process, you will learn mm -hmm. the language. So uh, in, in some way, then it's magical, you know. Yeah, and your process is interesting because I've followed you over many years now, and it, your process has a combination of iterative, like repeating, uh, returning to certain ideas, but also kind of um, following, allowing each step to move you along a path as well. Um, how do you um, how do you um, balance between um, repeating to to a to a a form and um, and and allowing your curiosity to kind of follow the the leads or the calls as they come, as you say, like, how do you balance those two things? Yeah. Um, so I make artwork, but it doesn't mean that I am making artwork uh, alone. Well, I do it alone in some way, but my process is, you know, is, 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 is the invincible process beyond the artist studio, right? So when I do a project, I need to write a grant and then someone will have to approve the grant and someone would have to be in a jury to approve it or maybe it's connected to a museum and then there's a, a whole separate team behind a museum that has to approve it and help me to make it happen. And maybe they have some other, some other input that they want to put in. So it, it does in some way a teamwork, uh, even though I don't, the team is not under me like in, in the formal sense, but it is a teamwork process. So, uh, so I let that role on its own, you know, so if it, if, it, if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't happen, then it doesn't happen. So I'm not like, uh, keep pursuing things that doesn't happen because I have so many interests that keep pushing me in, in different ways. And I'm just, but keep on going, you know, so sometimes I might seem that I'm not, uh, like a lot of work that I've done. I, I just store it, you know, like because I'm not redoing it, you know, because there's new things in front. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, and how do you how do you react to there's a Meredith Monk quote that I've come across recently, and she's a, um, a musician and a writer and performer. And she said the experience of creation and performing are as close to meditation 
as anything I can think of, coming back to a moment of awareness, trusting the emptiness, the space, the gift of uncertainty, not judging too quickly, letting the materials remain themselves until the time is right to weave them together into a form. How do you, how do you, um, does that resonate with you? And if so, how, how does it resonate with you? Yeah, um, sometimes uh, an artwork is the way, like I always tell people the story is that uh, the, I, I did a project in, in I think in Charlotte somewhere. Uh, and then uh, I, thought, I thought that the artwork was a failure because I want the artwork to be this way, you know, like uh, ABC. And then when I did it, it becomes CDB because it was not under my control. The audience took over the, my hierarchy of procedure. And I'd be like, oh man, it's like screw up, you know? So, so I was really unhappy that night. But then the next morning when I buy sandwich in a store and then the, the, the person who gave me the sandwich, the, 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 the clerk, the register, told me that this amazing art performance that he, he went to last night and it was my show, so. Wow, that's like um, that's like the such a selfless uh, um, experience, you know. Like you've been, you were so successful that you were removed as the creator of the artwork. Um, yeah, I was like, oh great. Yeah, so sometimes like, like in which part do you see success or failure? I don't know, you know. So <laughs> right, so you've achieved nirvana, the death of the ego, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, maybe even if you didn't want to. Yeah. Um, so um, related to that, um, how do you, um, where do you get your uh, a consistent source of creative energy uh, uh, to, to keep making work? How do you recharge when you feel depleted? Uh, so there is, uh, I, I keep, uh, I, don't, I don't feel depleted because I keep my whole state of uh, psyche in, in, in a equilibrium. Uh, mm -hmm. by being really alone. Like I don't, I try not to mix with a lot of people. I try to be in a solitude, even in New York, you know, like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, like when you were in New York, you invite me to out to hang out, I will show up, right? So, but, but without, other than that, I don't really like seek out any companionship because by being like, you, you being forced yourself to be somewhere that you doesn't want and then your mind started to be more, creative so it always mm -hmm. mind comes up when you are like being forced down so so that's how i'm always creative because i don't really i don't really consume input because i am suffocating my sensorial uh tools uh, by not seeing a lot and hearing a lot of things then my mind or creativity started to flow out because they they want they want more they want it so if they can't have it they have to create it so that's yeah. funny. I think you must have a kindred spirit in um, in Meredith Monk, as I in that same piece that um, that I read of hers. She said um, that um, that the um, when she was in New York City, she once she sought to banish the spurious complexities of urban life and reveal a kind of underground civilization um, that sings, dances, meditates. And relates to timeless forces you know so that that does seem to resonate um, um do you regard that place when you stay in solitude as a place of fear and discomfort or or how do you see that uh no is uh is a place of supreme bliss like that's the happiest because no one is like need anything from me and i'm not you know uh 
paying to get into somewhere, you know. So yeah, it's a, it's somewhere that I I like to be. It's not it's not it's not somewhere that I don't like to be. I I like to be in that particular zone. Do you have certain practices related to your um to your um your art making that you uh, return to again to to connect you to the work? Like I'm thinking in particular something that you mentioned to me a couple of years ago about this. Uh, the notion of the Lectio Divina, where people would read these texts, um, Latin texts, and over and over and over again, kind of like chanting, in order to create like an elevated state, and they would get in kind of this flow state where they would achieve a different understanding, maybe not even of that text itself, but a different understanding of life. Is that a, is that is there are there any practices that you use on a daily or weekly basis that you can relate to in that manner? Uh, no, not and that not not in that way but my my practice of doing the the way that you were talking about is basically writing an artist statement before the art is being made a lot of people mm. make art and then write the artist statement but i write the artist statement first and then making sure that it makes sense to other people not just me and mm. then and then only i do the art because it's make more sense that way for me so in some way i do the research i put the language in i massage it to see how it works and then and then I only execute the other. That's interesting. So this is paradox of you preferring to create an isolation, but creating an artist statement with which is a, a relational, you know, that you have a notion of how it will relate to the outside world or to other people. So you're, um, how do you balance between those two things? Do you have uh, people who you um, are giving this artist statement to or, or do you have an imagined public? Um, no, no, uh, just just be like, so sometimes you are being forced to write an artist statement because there's opportunity to, to oh, write. Right. Right, so right. you have to write it. So it'll be like, ah, this idea would be great. So you write it. But if 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 there is no no urgent uh, application that is you know in front of you, I still write it because it makes it makes sense by writing it because it it helps me to 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 see my thought in words and then the words become alive and I can map it. Usually I draw some kind of map how this whole process is going to make out what kind of material I need, who should I collaborate with and how much money I will need to make this happen and who is the possible partner that I should get and who am I talking to. So all those things comes into my mind, maybe because it's all about uh, my previous experience in advertising agency, because all their projects is on paper, mm -hmm. nothing happened. So everything is on paper and then they have brief and, and strategy and then they do some uh, sketching or like visual to, to illustrate what they were trying to do and then they pitch it to the client. So it, it's the same process that I'm using in the agency uh, way into the art format, you know. And so many artists um, resent or, or underdevelop that part of their, their, pers their practice, you know, and uh, um, um, how do you uh, reconcile that kind of worldly pitching slash advertising of oneself with the the very spiritual and communitarian aspects of your work which in some ways run contrary to that kind of uh approach to selling yeah uh, i see a lot of artists uh day job as a tools that uh is crucial in their life and shouldn't see that as uh impediment you know shouldn't see that something that you know that is not good so i took what is the best of the the day job you know into the art practice you know like just 
because it is serving different you know different different purpose right so you know if you, you could serve a bad purpose or serve a better purpose or serve the best purpose so it is still the same skill set you know so mm. yeah i guess in one sense you could say it's it's just good communication right. which yeah. you know because um, people are spending money. They want the uh, they want you to communicate very very clearly. Whereas artists can sometimes be accused of being willfully vague because they don't have to be specific. On the other hand, I do uh, the quote of the great poet Audre Lorde comes to mind that the the tools of the master's house cannot be used to dismantle it. Um, so uh, I probably bungled that quote, but you know what I mean. So does that sometimes worry you at all, or is that not a concern for you? uh no it's, it's not a concern of of mine like uh tools is a tools but the mind behind the tools is what whether you can you know dismantle the the, the master house and you know like a skill set is a skill set you know like it's whether the 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 purpose or like the intention of the skill set that makes it dangerous or, or benevolent mm. all right the neutral the neutral tool theory um and and speaking of um uh poets um what is your since i'm a, a poet and i think a lot about words and i know you do too um can you tell me what is your uh relationship to your work and poetry what would you say how does your how does your work interact with poetry and how how do you um experience that medium yeah i'm actually very bad at poetry and that's why uh i love poetry i always try to do things that I'm really bad at. Like I'm really bad at language. I speak five languages and I'm really bad at all of them. Mm. It's just, I don't know, I'm not good at it, but uh, but I still like to learn language because they are fascinating. You know? So in some way, like I, I'm trying to do things that I don't like, you know, push myself to do things that is like challenging, I guess. Yeah. Mm. Well, you're very humble. Um, and it does call to mind the idea that um, the worst mistakes in human history are usually due to overconfidence rather than humility. So probably better to err. When you say you speak five languages, it almost sounds like false humility because most Americans uh, who might be hearing this podcast um, would be impressed by that, I think, or uh, surprised because it's an unusual characteristic um, in, in these particular parts. Um, but tell me, um, you had a piece that you uh, wanted to read for, for um, uh, this show. I don't know if you have it available to you now. Yeah, I'm uh, looking for it. It is here somewhere. And it, it appears in, in Heal Humankind or? Uh, no, it is a note that I clip in into uh, the new, uh, yeah, into Heal Humankind. That uh, I'm referencing a book by um, Tatfu that came out in 2019, part of the um, New Earth Resiliency Training Module. And it's a beautiful book that details like hundreds of spiritual practices one can engage in. Um, and it's called Heal Humankind in Order to Heal the Land. And um, in his work, he's moved from very concrete practices of um, seed bombing and urban agriculture, where I first met him, where the land was being healed directly um, through human intervention. And it's his work has moved from um, a soil based uh, healing to a spirit-based healing. So it's an interesting journey for me because it 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 mimics my own, not mimics, um, traces, um, because it's, uh, I've been following you more than the other way around, but it, it traces a similar path that I've had because uh, we, we met when we were both working in 
um, supporting urban agriculture and uh, you actually doing it more than I did, um, me actually finding ways to, um, to uh, envision how to get it done uh, in, in New York City and other cities. And, um, and then I've moved from, I've realized that in my own uh, journey that the, you know, there's, the, there's a, the healing has to be a broader um, uh, journey. Maybe before you read the poem, because it seems like maybe you, um, you've found it, can you explain how that, um, how you, you, um, that shift happened for you from uh, a very soil-based practice to a spirit-based practice? Yeah, um, as I was uh, seeing uh, the, uh, all this uh, climate change and ecological disaster happening and looking at the responses that we, we, we are responding to this crisis, which is none, we don't respond much. And I really suspect that we are not going to respond until it is like too late. And uh, that's when I started to say, oh, wait a minute, like how come people are not responding to data, which is scientific and it shows you black and white what's going on. So my mind started to understand that it's not the lack of uh, data saying that we shouldn't do this, but the lack of spiritual understanding. When I say spiritual, I mean the way you look at the world, uh, your, the way you look at the reality of what this world is all about. Mm -hmm. and this world is different from my world and Derek's world is different and your world, the listener, is different. So we have billions of worlds that we live in, but we share the same earth, which is the material earth. Um, but the way we see our world, our worldview is so different. So one of the way to heal the earth is not really to show you more data, but to really let you understand who you truly are. So mm -hmm. in order to do that part of your true self, then you understand that you are not really a separate individual, but a collective. We are a collective. So in that way, then you would slowly, hopefully, uh, be able to understand that all the action that we did, uh, even the small one, are all accumulated and interconnected. So, yeah. That um, that reminds me so much of what you're saying. You know, it's it's um, it's so funny the way when you see you know one bird um, uh, of one type, you begin seeing that bird all over the place. You know what I mean? Like when you develop an awareness, um, it. Um, it, it, you begin hearing the same thing over again. And the same economist, Daniel Kahneman, who's really influenced me over the last couple of weeks since I became familiar with his work, he says this thing that it's almost impossible to convince people rationally to change their beliefs um, because their beliefs are what they, they come from in terms of a whole set of lived experiences. Um, and what, the, what most people's rational argumentation is, is not... Um, uh, what they think of as ra rationality is really um, confirming their biases, right? They're not, um, they're not actually taking in new information. They're explaining to you why they're not going to take in new information. Um, and so that's, I think I had the same journey, but I, I hadn't had a way like you did to articulate that or that Daniel Kahneman did to articulate it is that the way to, to make change has to be both physical and interior and people are more likely to change if you can somehow reach their anterior. Um, yeah. You know, even Walt Whitman said, you know, all atoms that I contain, so you contain. It's this radical spirituality that, you know, we, 
we're very connected more than you think, you know, um, that's, that's our great national poet of free verse. And so I've been thinking about that a lot. So that's interesting um, and concerned about that a lot. Um, anyway, so without further ado, maybe uh, could you read us, uh, tell us the poem that you've selected and, um, and, and if you wouldn't mind, read it for us. Yeah, it's called, um, it's a poem from uh, uh, the book, Eternal Echoes, page 50 by John O'Donohue uh, says, blessed be the longing that brought you here and that quickens your soul with wonder. May you have the courage to befriend your eternal longing. May you enjoy the critical and creative companionship of the question, who am I? And may it brighten your longing. May a secret providence guide your thoughts and shelter your feeling. May your mind inhabit your life with the same sureness with which your body belongs to the world. May the sense of something absent enlarge your life. May your soul be as free as the ever new waves of the sea. May you succumb to the danger of growth. May you live in the neighborhood of wonder. May you belong to love with the wilderness of dance. May you know that you are ever embraced in the kind circle of God. Yeah, so it, it has something that, uh, um, that I relate to. Uh, one of them is the question of who am I, right? Mm -hmm. And there is this book called Who Am I? Uh, no, I am that or something like that. But, but you recommended that book to me. Yeah, so uh, so that uh, that particular sage or saying um, really clear his articulation of uh, of this spiritual uh, conundrum uh, of who am I, uh, and I really love that. And one of the practice of Advaita Vedanta, the non-dual philosophy, is. Uh, questioning who you are, you know, like that's the, mm -hmm. one of the like who am I? Like you have to keep following that thoughts until you found out who you are. Mm -hmm. And then the second thing is that the sense of something absent in your life that is also something that I felt like oh, that's always because you never satisfy you 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 bought this thing and then you, and then you you want another thing, you know. So you never satisfy is because there is something absent in you. So you are trying to find that things that you wanted to belong to. Mm -hmm. So that calling, right? So that is something that I. Uh, yeah, that really uh, touched me in this particular point. Mm, thanks yeah. for sharing that and sharing your interpretation. The book um, uh, I Am That is uh, that you recommend to me is by, I'm going to screw this name up, uh, yeah. but I believe it's Nisargadatta Maharaj. Yeah. Yes. Um, um, and um, yeah, that, that poem is interesting and that concept is interesting of questioning, you know, the, the you know, in the Western tradition, we have Socrates who says, um, you know, the unexamined life is not worth living. Um, and the question is why, you know, and then you have the Buddha saying, you know, um, that that longing for anything is suffering, you know, so these things are, are in tension with each other, you know, if you, if you're even your curiosity about yourself, although Buddha suggests a curiosity about yourself in a different way, but the curiosity about the self can also lead to suffering. How do you, how do you negotiate the a curiosity that is one of longing and suffering uh, versus a curiosity that's um, maybe more healing and um, uh, illuminating. Yeah, so what Buddha is saying is that, that, that suffering is longing for something material, something of this world that will lead to suffering. But when you long for the bigger self, the big 
S or the big G that leads to liberation. It shouldn't lead to suffering because that's the base of everything. Like once you reach that, you should be liberated. That's not no suffering. Uh, so, so that's the, the main longing. So if you're longing for, you know, your, your beloved, which is a person, a real person, then there will be leads to suffering. If your longing is for the beloved, the big beloved, which is God, then it shouldn't suffer, you know. So uh, that's what I, uh, my, my thinking about uh, belonging and, uh, and, and try, try to, uh, um, you know, looking for something beyond yourself. You know? So that's what I'm trying to do. Could you say, though, what about the notion that um, longing for something that you already have is is um, is uh, tricky. Like if you're if you're truly in a meditative state, what you realize is that you already have a yes. connect a connection to yourself. You always did. You were always yeah. present, yeah. and you don't need to long for it. You just need right. to accept it. Yeah. Which is, I think, different. Longing, I think, for me, yeah. always has this aspect of of something missing, something painful. Um, Whereas I think with the value of the, of the meditation tradition that, that we've been talking about and uh, that we've shared on occasion when, when we went to the Zen temple together um, is a return to yourself right. and a return to yourself as not being of just yourself, like a, a, a self that's connected to all cells, you know? Right. Yes. Um, and that's the, that's the back to the Whitman quote, you know, um, I contain, you contain every atom that I contain. Um, yeah. So that's more about awareness than it is about longing. Is, yeah. do, you, do you think that's right or? Yes, totally uh, agree on that. But I think the way we use language, uh, just to be more specific is that we, when I say uh, longing, I am using the words of, uh, of a micro view, you know? Uh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. When I say, you know, uh, you know, like looking for the big self, like I'll, I'm, I'm switching word between something that is personal and something that is like, so I'm right, the, right. so it the way I talk is always confusing and the way scripture talks is always confusing because they're switching between like this tiny me that is nothing but actually me that is everything they keep switching mm. between so you're like what are you guys talking about this saying like they are like crazy right? so, but, but because they are like keep switching between their personal self and their big self so so even even though that you know that you are infinity, but you sometimes still worship uh, a god or an idol or deity because that is your small self. You know your small self always needs to be humble. That's why you worship something that is beyond mm -hmm. yourself. But even though that you are beyond that, you know that. Uh, but you are like keep switching your mind between those two. So uh, I think that is a skill that everyone should be able to do. Like keep switching between like your small self and the big self. So when you face a certain thing. Um, yeah, switch your perspective, you know, uh, that's, that's very crucial. I think that's a, 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 it's, it's a mature way of practicing spirituality, because if you have that ideology, you know, you are, you know, you are a spiritual master, but not being in the religion, because religion, you are being controlled by only the small self, you know, all mm -hmm. every other religion will tell you to be in the small self. Right. My practice is mostly trying to be a mystic where the mystic mm. is about the big self you know but like a, a hermit like a hermit yeah and hermit mystic because mystic is like rebel right they usually get killed you know like i hope you don't right yeah <laughs> and uh, because they have you know blasphemy but then at some way then they'll be sanctified right they'll be they become sane because they'll be like the church will be like oh okay uh, let's let's 
name him a saint because like he's really powerful. So, but usually that's a, the between like the uh, the big self and the small the, the the macro view and the micro view is is kind of a cool things to do. I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess I just always think the the simplest thing for me in that dyad, uh, which is the Western way of always thinking in like you know either or both you know. Uh, but I think of the dyad as there's a difference between wanting and being, right? Um, you don't have to want to breathe and you don't have to want to be, you just are. Um, and that's the great relief of, of, of a spiritual practice is you don't have to want uh, anymore, you know? And, uh, and even heaven, the Christians describe heaven as free of wanting, one version of heaven. There's another version, the land of cocaine, which is, seems to be holding sway in late stage capital where heaven is uh, an orgy. <laughs> but uh, anyways, that seems to be the basis by which America was created. Um, so uh, I want to switch to this. Um, what, um, what brings you the greatest joy in, in your arts practice? Um, doing my art, I guess, like executing it, seeing people interact with it, seeing the joy that they had or, or learning something new. Uh, or just uh, well, I have this practice called learn, practice, and teach the process. So I the joy I, I have joy when I'm learning new things like right now reading books and going to classes. I will have joy when I am I, I learn a practice. I will learn. I will have joy like trying things out and failing and mm -hmm. doing prototype, and then I will have joy doing uh, sharing it. You know that's why I wrote. Uh, three sort of like module a book so you can see them on my website tatfu.com and the front front page you you can download the book if you want uh, and see it and uh, so the joy in, in three parts also basically you know like I, I enjoy the whole process of learning practicing and sharing it hmm. yeah no it's I was gonna one of my other questions that relates to that and since you brought the book up so I read with great interest me and friends have read with great interest and joy um, of learning um, through uh, Heal Humankind. And there's so many practices in here now. Um, how, how do you decide yourself which of these to do on any given day? You know, there's because there's hundreds of practices here. Like, do you are there? Do you have particular days you do particular things on? How does that work? Or is this just um, how does that work for you? Yeah, so uh, the book is just basically from it, 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 it is basically uh, show my evolution of my own spiritual sort of path where uh, I try to understand what's the basis of spirituality which is connection to the world that you live in which is the four elements you know the fire the waters the, the minerals and stuff like that so that is very shamanic very earth-based mm -hmm. or ayurvedic too right yeah, so uh, I'm trying to learn things that way. And then I did those practices and then I keep searching and then you go up another level, your consciousness grow and then you grow up another level, another level. And then that's how the book kind of evolved. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, in, in, in an everyday life, I don't practice everything or, or, or look for a certain practice, you know. Uh, but my practice every day is to be really keen on keeping a tap on my mind that's my main practice mm. you when you feel sad you want to inquire why you are sad or when you're frustrated why you are frustrated or mm. when you, everything that your mind come up with like, I, i'm like have a spotlight keen light upon it like okay what what is this feeling mean and where where did i had this feeling first time like what trigger it? that's what my main practice is everything that i have 
everything that happens in my daily life, uh, I try to scrutinize it in a good way, not in a bad way. I want to know why these things comes up. So that's my main practice. Mm. So like, I'll just choose a page and, 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 and inquire with you about okay. two things, because I think there's a connection between arts practice and spiritual practice. So like on page 31, there's a sacred tools, right? And, um, and you go through all of these different things. And so similar to like, um, when do you choose to use this tool or in, in a similar question, when do you choose to use a particular medium? Like when do you choose to make an origami crane that we see on one of the page from a recycled envelope, I might add, um, and or or use your typewriter to send you send yourself snippets of poetry. Like how, when do you choose to use a particular practice or use a particular artistic practice like and, and are there and what's the is there any connection there? Yeah, I think it, uh, in a certain stage of your life, your emotion drive you to do a certain thing, right? So, uh, so those practices is when I am going through a certain emotion, and I want to put those kind of emotion on paper or on tangible things. That's a, that's why I did the, the index card with quotes and stuff like that. And at some point in my life, I felt that I'm really blessed, even though I don't have much. But there's a lot of people that helps me in my life. So, but I can't really thank you them that much already some because they are sometimes really they probably forget that they helped me already it's like years after that so i keep a little thank you uh jar you know gratitude jar to put their names and and what happened back then put it into it you know so it's a certain practice that that you can you that you could uh, reflect upon uh but like right now i'm practicing um vedic chanting is something that i do right now because it's connection to sanskrit mm -hmm classes so is it something that i do and all those practice I, it, it becomes another 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 tool set right two tools that i could use next time when i write you know volume two of the book or something you know that i could put it in you know so uh yeah so i just it just evolve as your life go through and if i need back those tools that i already accumulated i can always go back to them when i need them hmm. so, well, you certainly have cataloged them very well, so you know yeah. what they are, yeah. Yeah, actually, you're just accumulating tools, you know, like next time I have a mm -hmm. nervous breakdown or something, I will go back to a certain tools that I know it will help. I like feel that. like you're sort of like a spiritual hardware store, you know, it's like, uh, it's nice. Um, could you share some of the Vedic chanting with us? Is it, did I say that right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Is that possible yeah, that you could, we could hear a little bit of it? Sure, I uh, will do uh, the... Uh, I might have caught you off guard, but I always think it's beautiful to hear chanting. And, and um, um, I recently heard a poetry program that was um, a, an English poetry program, you know, poetry about word, uh, works in English, where a, um, an Iraqi uh, um, poet was being read in, by the translator in the original um, Arabic and then back into in the English translation. And they the Arabic was so much more beautiful, even without me understanding what the words were. Um, so I was really moved by that. So I thought it might be fun for us to um, follow that model. Cool. Let's do uh, the main one. Okay. And set this set this up for us. What are we? Oh, set it up. What are, so, what are, what's our? What are we supposed to be feeling right now? <laughs> so this is uh, they call it a Shanti mantra, a mantra mm. of peace. Uh, there's a lot of them. Uh, this one is basically the feeling of fullness, completeness. That's, that's the main thing that you should have in your mind, completeness. You are full. Nothing lacks in your life. Everything is being taken care of. 
So the, the word by word translation is that it says, the absolute is complete, full of divine consciousness. This inner world is also complete. From the fullness of divine consciousness, the world is manifested. If the complete is taken from the complete, what still remains is complete because divine consciousness is non-dual and infinite. Peace, peace, peace. So that's the translation. So, okay, let's start. Om Purnamadav Purnamidam Purnat Purnamudachate Purnasya Purnamadaya Purname Vava Visyate Om Shantish Shantish Shantihi. So it sounds beautiful. And it's interesting that this often happens with English translations from other language. It's so much longer. <laughs> the English translation has all these like modifications and you know, English is so multiply modified. Like I know yeah. in, in, because... in Latin languages, you can, um, there's all these kind of ways to express possessives without the word of, right. um, you know, and so, but English is, English is like this uh, shipping language, you know, where you have to have everything spelled out. Right. Um, so. Yeah. Um, that was beautiful. And, and when you chant that, do, it, what, what happens for you? Uh, when do you do it during the day and what, what transformations do you experience? This is uh, a, a very basic chanting. Usually you chant this when you open up uh, a talk or ceremony or anything. Mm. It's just a completeness. This, you can chant this in the end of uh, like today. Like let's say we end this, we can chant this to, as a, like a sign off, you know. That sounds and, beautiful. Yeah, and if you want to open, and you can open with another one, you know, like a so like a like a open speech, you know. And, Maybe you you might influence the way that I run this 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 program now. I like that. Yeah, um, uh, and then uh, and another one that uh, you know, like let's say you are doing a teaching or something, you want your student, you know, there's another one that you can do with like a teacher-student relationship, you know, so that you like you're teaching people something, then you want to like okay, hopefully this will be good and things like that. Yeah, so, so all this is kind of a uh, words. Uh, I see this mantra thing as like a word of uh, what you call it, affirmation. You know, like word of affirmation. Sometimes that like when you do something, you want to affirm yourself that you know. Mm. I can I'm, I can do this. You know, like things like that. It's almost like that. Every word that in is in here is word of affirmation. You know, basically. Right. Very positive. You, yeah, positive word. You know, like uh, okay, you you can do this. This is this is good. You know. Yeah, I, I, I had a weird relationship to chanting, you know, when, when I started in yoga classes in the old days before it became exercise, it, there was always chanting um, at the beginning and the end. Um, and certainly at the Zen temple, um, shout out to the, the Brooklyn Zen temple, we did a lot of chanting in both uh, Japanese, uh, Sanskrit, um, and English. And... Um, I always found it, it sometimes I, I had a resistance, which I think a lot of people did. And that's why probably chanting doesn't exist in yoga classes much anymore. Even Om seems to have gone by the wayside. Um, it made people feel uncomfortable to, to sort of, uh, it felt like cultural appropriation or it felt like they were saying things they didn't know what they meant. And that made them feel uncomfortable. Like they were invoking some demon from some foreign culture that they didn't understand. Yeah. But um, in my case, I, I, I made peace with my, my misunderstanding just to say that it was like a different form of breath, you know, that it was a different way of being in touch with my breath. And particularly in the temple, in the temple context, when other people are doing it together, it, it can sometimes move you to tears because it's you're, 
some of the chants have these like deep resonant tones like ohm for instance when a whole room says it and says it sincerely in trying to make some kind of connection to the breath and to 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 the eternal or the or the universal there's like that that m can resonate throughout the whole room and 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 change your your vibrational energy because we're made of bone you know so it that just like music it, it enters you that way so i became more comfortable with just you know, the way I would sing Latin, you know, um, uh, devotional music and had no idea what I was saying. And I was totally fine with it because it sounded beautiful. I had came to that same kind of comfort with chanting. But you had the opposite experience where I think you were motivated to find out what the chants meant. And what, what, why did that move you to, to, to really dig deep and study a language which most people find profoundly difficult? Oh, uh, yeah, it is truly difficult, I have to say. Uh... Apparently, I didn't know how difficult it is. It took me uh, a year to just learn the, the, the grammar, a year, and then the teacher told me that you have nine more years to master it. So I'm on my second year, so eight years to go. So, yeah. so this, that is a spiritual practice, right? To, to, to be so committed to speaking this language of the past, because even Sanskrit is not spoken today, right? It's like this ancient language, right? Uh, it, it is spoken a little bit, uh, I think, in India. Uh, people still do it, and uh, I think there's still people trying to revive it and things like that. But uh, yeah, it's, less, it's, not a, it, it's not a daily language that people use. Uh, and yeah. it, it is, you know, the tradition is, it, it is like a, more like a, what you call it, a, a, a snobbish language. You know, people use that to write poetry, poems, mm -hmm. and, and sacred texts. You know, it's not used in like daily communication, you know, mm -hmm. the same was true for many years with Latin, of course, you know, Latin was this refuge of, um, I don't know, snobbery is a little bit of a harsh judgment, but certainly elite ways of for elites to communicate with each other. Um, it's almost like a secret language. Um, and I felt like in sometimes in yoga classes, the Sanskrit was like the secret language. And sometimes I felt like the instructor didn't even know the secret. No, um, yeah. So um, tell me what what has changed for you now that you've become more acquainted with the meanings? Uh, has, has, has the experience of chanting um, altered since you've begun to study? Uh, yeah, uh, well, I, I, I like the sound, as you say, it's probably the sound that, that really, uh, you know, attracted me. And of course, I know uh, Malay language where I'm from, mm. and that they borrow, you know, I don't know, 10% of Sanskrit word into that language. So a lot of Sanskrit word, I already know the meaning. So, so that makes it very comfortable. You know, it's like, oh yeah, that that is the same meaning. You know, I remember when I was small. You know, so it it gives you the feeling of you know closeness. So you already sort of like know part of it. Um, so that's kind of cool. And then. Um, and then I've been reading all this, uh, all this Upanishad, which is like the, the, the holy book, the scripture in, 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 Sanskrit, in, in English translation and the Sanskrit word. And, um, and I just want to know like what it's all about, you know, so that's, that's, that's what intrigued me. And then once mm -hmm. I know how deep this language is and it's keep on intriguing. So one of the things that pulls me and that I still doing it is because the language is so complex that it is mm -hmm. like puzzle every time you try to translate a word, it's mm. like a puzzle. It can break up like crazy, like um, basically two lines of sentence, you, you probably need an hour to, to translate. Mm. And then you break them apart. And then in the words, you break the words, every single vowel and sound can be break apart into different things. It's kind of crazy. And then when they join, they change. Imagine that one word and one word, when they join this end and the start of the next word, they interchange so that they lock. Mm. 
so that it's seamless when you pronounce it. I like never the way two people. Yeah. What's that? That's the way it would like almost the words come together the way two people come together and right. by the experience of, of, of being unified, they, they right. alter their experience, their, exactly. their meaning. And then I never had a language that, uh, that is so puzzly that when you look at it, it's like a puzzle. You don't know what's going on and you have to slowly break them apart, dissect them. Basically, I use, I use, a, I use a vertical line, like one word, and then you have, you have to draw a vertical line across the word so that you break them apart. Mm. Because they all join into a, a super word, which is super long. But inside oh, right. them, 10 words, then you have to like uncut them. And then after that, you have to uh, change their ending and the first character back into the original form. Mm -hmm. And then you have to look at all the endings to make up all the, all the cases. So it's like a, it's a little, you know, investigative thing, you know, investigate what's going on. So that is, is intriguing. Yeah, yeah, I'm having the same experience, but maybe not as profound as yours. Um, uh, with Hebrew, I'm studying Hebrew and I find the thing that, that's fascinating about that is that there's so many of these stories that um, that we're there. It's been filtered through through two other traditions and and multiple sm smaller traditions within those traditions of Islam and Christianity interpreting the same books. And like for instance, just the smallest thing is um, the what they what the Christians call Exodus, which is from the Greek translation of the Bible, which means the um, the um, leaving. From a place to exo to to leave from um, focuses on the end of that book, whereas the the Hebrew name for it is um, is um, uh, uh, Samet, which is the named the names of the slaves that went down to Egypt. So it's this this tracking of the genealogy of 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 a people from slavery. So it's sort of like I realize that it's sort of like the way Americans want to think about the Civil War being the end of slavery. And they want to, and so the Christians call the book Exodus. So they're like, end of slavery. It's all done. Now it's all revelation, right? But the Jews think of it as always being a people who had been formerly enslaved, the same way black people have that consciousness. And, and particularly in the last year, I realized there's this powerful way in which if you talk, think of yourself as the descendants of those named slaves, as opposed to those who were freed, right? It's, a, it's for Jews, it's both and. It's not, and, and also it's not just celebrating the exodus, it's celebrating the struggle to get there. Um, and so I think that that's been a real, just that one word of that one book uh, was a whole, uh, revealed a whole dialogue about that. Um, and uh, I probably butchered that, but my, and my Hebrew teacher will forgive me. But, um, but yeah, I've had a similar experience that it is like a puzzle. And, and I think Hebrew has some things in common with Sanskrit because they were developing around the same time. Um, I'm of course brought to mind about you saying Malay. Malay has some some Sanskrit, and it's like I think of that William Burroughs quote that language is a virus from outer space. You know, the way that all of us, all of our languages infect each other. You know, in a, in a sort of that negative version of infection, uh, but the positive version is that they inflect upon each other. Right, that's the the, the positive. Um, what tradition did you grow up in? Um, if you did, a religious tradition. I would say it's Taoism. Mm. Um, what that's that's what the whole town is practicing uh taoism and then of course uh buddhism in in a in a bigger sense and then uh malaysia is a islam islamic country so there there is islam influence and and uh and call for prayers and things like that is everywhere so i had all those exposure 
Mm. Were you part of a religious minority um, when you were in Malaysia then, if it was a majority yeah, yeah. Muslim? The Chinese is a minority race and yeah, Taoism is also a minority mm. religion. Yeah. And how do you think that influenced your, um, your development of thoughts about spirituality? Um, I always tell people because uh, I do not have a good understanding of uh, religion when I'm growing up. My parents couldn't explain what Taoism is. Uh, so they just practice it because everyone is doing it. And of course, they, they just want to have a healthy, happy and prosperous life. And that's why they pray to a deity. Uh, nothing wrong with that, but they couldn't explain more than what it is. So um, so I didn't know much about that. So I learned, I learned most of uh, Taoism in the West rather than the East uh, by reading books and, and, you know, and things like that. Mm. Uh, you know, some... Sometimes um, I've, I've been trying to develop an understanding myself, like a hierarchy of understanding. And I think sometimes the religions we grew up in, um, the the rituals, the rituals felt empty right, because yeah. they were because they were they were habitual as opposed to re related to a practice. Mm -hmm. And I sort of see like um, practice and ritual are different. Like for instance, in yoga, you you can't really ritualize it because your body is different every time you come to the mat. But we have this fantasy when we go, I think, into churches or temples or into communal worship that we're the same person, you know, and somehow the ritual isn't, you know, it, the ritual is the same um, each time, you know, but really it changes, you know. Um, so I think that's that's a struggle that a lot of people have is that they feel the, there's, the rituals are the rituals are habitual as opposed to, to uh, um, a practice of meaning. Does that resonate with you or? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Uh... But of course, uh, it, I've been telling, I'm trying to tell my mom the, 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 the idea behind all this ritual, but as old people, they refuse to listen. So I'll be like, that's fine, then do it your own way. You know? So everyone has their own thing, you know, like they just want right. to do it the way. Yeah, some people just do it because that's how it's been done, but they doesn't really want to know what's the significance of it. You know, mm -hmm. like what's even, because I, lo I love to understand more than what is being practiced, like what you said. I want to know even like the metaphysical meaning behind it. What is the, how we can even tweak it to make it better or like, you know, incorporate other practices into it. That's mm. what my, my fancy is. So my, um, so yeah, but that is, that is just me. But some other people just want to do the ritual for the sake of the ritual and, mm. uh, and they are, sometimes the intention might not even be, be good, right? So um, ritual is also a tool set. So, Hopefully they use the ritual for a good intention. So. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think I forget who said this quote, but uh, uh, it, it's it comes to me now that religion is very useful when you don't know what to do with yourself at moments of birth and moments of death, and then everything in between. It it seems like it it, it doesn't have much function. You know, I I remember reading that somewhere, and that resonated with me. Um, apologies to the author who gave me that wisdom that I don't recall the source from. Um, but tell me, um, to switch a little bit, um, what do you see your relationship uh, to divinity or the relationship of your artwork to divinity or to a notion of God? Yeah, um, I did my art is because it is, uh, it is a push, like being pushed to do something, right? You're like being called to do, it's a calling. So you, you did it, you perform it. And, um, and then whether it's good or bad, I just give back you know, to, to God, you know, like whatever it is, you know, it is what it is. That's my, I did the best I could do and hopefully it works and uh, yeah, and, and what it is. And as being uh, a non-dualist, if that is such a term, being idea of like you understand non-duality. So uh, mm -hmm. you, you 
I myself see myself uh, not only as an individual, but is connected with everyone else. Um, and, uh, and I'm pursuing a, a spiritual path of uh, mysticism and, and contemplative life. Uh, but I know that I am not this body, this mind, this name. I am connected and is part of the big G, the big God. So yeah, so I'm at one point I had a, a name tag, uh, you know, like this is my name and I put God, G-O-D, and I was walking around. Uh, and then people got a shock. That's pretty funny. funny. I have a student who, you know, I'm, my day job as an artist is teaching creative writing. And one of my students, we did a character study and he, one of my students, his character was God. Yeah. Uh, and another one of my students decided that his character study was going to be Jesus. And of course, these are two characters that we've spent a lot of time studying uh, in the Western and other traditions. Yeah. That's, and of course, when I say God is not a person, I mean God is in the ground of everything, you know, so, yeah. You know, there are there's notions of personification of God and gods, and there's all sorts of um, conflations. I mean, of course, God of the Old Testament uh, is really a, an interesting and slightly cranky persona. Um, it doesn't have uh, all the aspects of the of the eternal and universal, but uh, it's more like you know, love me, love me. Um, so um, that actually, it's interesting you say calling. You know, I think about a lot of the ways that we our, our culture in the United States, and, and maybe to the extent that we've influenced the whole world or that the whole world is becoming more like the rest of, you know, the whole world is becoming more like, a, like each other, um, that there's this, this way that we make a division between labor and vocation, right? Like vocation, even, even like in New York, there's like these vocational schools, right? And vocation actually means a calling. Um, vo vo vocation from voice from voice or profession also means that it comes from, uh, from the, um, the Sanskrit root vak vak okay so I knew you would help me out here <laughs> um, I, I only go back to Latin I don't go to Latin's uh, roots in Sanskrit but and so it's funny that we think about when you think about vocation you think about some guy in a technical high school fixing cars you don't think about you know and that could be a spiritual practice I'm not denigrating it at all but I don't think people think about, they think about labor, particularly physical labor as being different than vocation. How do you see the relationship between the, the kind of physical, administrative, humdrum, gotta get this done aspect of your work and the, and the vocational aspect of your work in the, in the, in the divine sense, not in the uh, you know, technical high school sense? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know. I don't think it's, I don't separate them. I have my own humdrum things. I like um, one of my client needs me to enter a bunch of Excel sheet. And that is a humdrum thing that I have to do because, you know, this part of my, the way I make a living. So mm -hmm. I just like putting data, you know, uh, but it is, I turn it into a meditative practice, basically, <laughs> you know, like a, just keep doing it, doing it. You mm -hmm, know, like, mm -hmm. So, yeah. Uh, the, I don't see it as a, any, any different, you know, it's the, the, it might not be creative or might not be interesting, but, you know, it is you know, like the, the, the Hindu or the Vedic pantheon would say, you know, it is your dharma, it is your duty to perform this certain task and you have to get on with it, you know, so. Mm. Yeah. Well, you know, all, a lot of faiths have prayer beads, right? And that um, data comes from the word for um, using your hands, right? counting on your hands. So 
uh, a datum is a finger, right? So, um, or digit is a finger, which is part of the datum, right? So counting with fingers. Um, and so if you maybe our spreadsheets are just a modern version of a, some form of rosary. I have to do it all the time too for my, yeah. everything is a spreadsheet now, unfortunately, um, in, in any kind of administrative task of which my teaching seems to be 80% administrative, but the 10% of joyous connection to the creative spirit of my students and sometimes myself, sometimes it gets me through. Um, so talk to me about, um, let's take a, let's, let's, let's talk about darkness for just a second. Um, what, um, uh, because I feel like there cannot be light without darkness. We always want to focus on the light and I, I appreciate that. We always want to say the positive words because the darkness um, can overtake us, um, particularly thinking people, I think, are very susceptible to the darkness roaming in and staying too long. Um, so, but how do you, um, what, um, what do you fear the most um, uh, about uh, your life or what defeats you uh, and makes you want to give up uh, a creative practice? Um, or what, what, uh... I, okay, so I think I did. I will not be able to give up a creative practice, but a creative practice might not come to me. Mm -hmm. like right now, I don't have much uh, uh, projects or opportunities in my lab. Like now, it's a kind of like an empty vacuum. So that's like I'm not abandoning my creative practice, but the creative practice is not coming to me. Mm -hmm. You know, like opportunities and um, and ideas might not come to me. So. So I don't abandon them, you know, it's just not coming to me. And that is still okay because I'm occupied, you know, I'm still full, you know. So mm. in some way, I would not see my creative practice as an identity. It's just something that I do, something that I could be able to take it up and put it back down. So I'm not identified with it. Mm. So, so you don't, you, you try to stay away from, from, the, from, from the fear and the darkness about it. Yeah, so the only darkness that I have is fear of death. I think that's everyone. So mm. that's my main, uh, my main, uh, I don't know, like uh, meditation or my main focus is like, uh, you know, uh, what is life, what is dying, what's death. You know? So yeah, uh, that's my main darkness that I'm always in my mind, you know. Uh, but other than that, all this, uh, and, and also some darkness about making a living where I can pay my rent, you know, a little mm. bit of that fear in my life, you know. Mm. everyone have that uh, yeah so those are the things that keeps me uh, awake or whatever mm. yeah well, i guess in a way uh, they're both the same fear right like fear fear of death is a fear of loss of freedom right because if you're yeah. dead you no longer can exercise free freedom or free will and not being able to pay the rent is a little step towards not having as much freedom yeah a little step towards death because uh, if you don't have a house meaning that you are kind of open and then might be you know you, you are exposed so being exposed you might get injured being injured you might die so things kind of connected although i have to say in my own experience um i feared um the loss of all these comforts and as you know i suffered some setbacks in my life and i i probably due to my own foolishness and or the the trajectory of traumas on uh tended over many years and and I lost all these things that I thought if, that if I lost them, I would have no identity and I, I would have no comfort and I would be edging my way towards some kind of death of personality. But that actually 
to some extent, that's true. That did happen, but in a way, it just it allowed for more space to uh, become a more full version of myself. Um, I wish I could have done it without so much suffering and pain or dragging others along with me for that ride. But um, Meredith Monk says similarly. Every time she starts a new artwork, she starts from a place of abject terror. Um, uh, does that resonate with you? The terror of the unknown. Uh, y y yeah. Uh... I think uh, for for me, the unknown is more like a, it's it's not really a terror. It's more like a a welcoming uh, mm. trigger. Uh, I don't know a pull, unknown. Uh, you know, it's like oh, it's unknown. So mm -hmm. interesting. You know, like uh, so that's 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 what uh, a starting of a new artwork uh, feel feel to me. But a lot of my artwork, I destroy them. Like the physical thing, anything that's physical, I don't keep them. So mm -hmm. in some way, uh, it makes it fresh because every time if someone recommissioned that same piece, they have to, they or me have to remake it, you know? Mm -hmm. So it involves new people, a new set of, uh, a new set of things, you know? So in some way, it's always fresh in some way and even could be updated, like, you know, software, it always could be updated mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. back then I was, not so informed. Now I'm more informed, so I could make it better, right? So in some way that is good, and in some way that is also bad, because if someone wants to show a piece of artwork before, I can't show it because it's gone. It's no more here. So in some way, uh, it forced me to go forward. There's no stepping stone to just show old work. Mm. Keep going. Like there's no there's no old work to show because That's there's new. I think that you know I, I, this interview with Meredith Monk is resonating with me again, and she says that there's an difference between people who create art products and people who create art practices. And she said she did both and she, but she far preferred the performance because she said at the beginning of a performance cycle, it was like a baby that wasn't quite ready to be born. And by the end, it was like a, a baby that could crawl a little bit. And so that, you know, it changed, the artwork changed in relationship to time and other artists and, and allowed her to grow in the process. And, but the idea of her creating some static thing that was sort of dead in the moment that it was created kind of depressed her. <laughs> uh, does that resonate with you? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and it started to also resonate with a lot of things that I own. I'm just, uh, you know, a, 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 in, it's, those objects is only in my custody. You know, I'm like a, a caretaker for them. And then in some way, they're going to pass on to the next person mm -hmm. who would have it when I pass away. So like owning a, a fountain pen that, that is like, 150 years old and I'll be like wow who used it before and it's still surviving I'm going to use it for another 20 years or 30 years and after that someone else is going to use it you know it's because it is indestructible and it performs super well and I see that this is how life is you know so you shouldn't get attached to those things so let them let them go well we're I'm I'm, I'm moving towards winding us down here because I'm aware of time and but I just wanted to ask you like um who are the artists who inspire you the most um yeah, to become an artist um, and also artists that inspire you the most to continue to make work today. Uh, yeah, uh, Joseph, Joseph Boyd, Joseph Boyd is a, a big influence. Mm -hmm. And of course, I like uh, Isamu Naguchi because he's both a designer, an artist, a set maker. He's like, you know, being in both worlds, you know, in being Asia and in the West. Uh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I like his design. Um, else uh yeah a, a lot of other people but one of the one of the main crucial exhibition that i was in uh 
20 years ago in Staten Island in Snark Harbor uh, was with uh, 50 artists. It's called Invincible Thread. It's, uh, it's like artists that were influenced by Buddhism. Hmm, invisible uh, Thread. All right. Yeah. yeah, that's part of the chant. Uh, one of our one of the chants that we had was talked about the invisible thread. Yeah, I think I remember that in the mm -hmm. exactly. Uh, yeah. So um, so that particular show, uh, I didn't know when I was participating in the show that I'll come back to do this. Then uh, the exhibition twenty years later, which was two years ago, uh, in the same place. So it almost uh, like a perfect circle to me. You know. Mm. Like, People that Isamu Naguchi was in the show and a lot of other artists and even the founder of the Zen Center, mm. the show. Uh, so it's almost like a perfect circle for me, like uh, mm. something that I was searching for already is in front of me. I couldn't see it, it takes me 20 years back to finally uh, research back uh, like uh, what I was supposed to be seeing. So, yeah. And a couple, couple last questions just to, to give people some tools. Um, you said your website already, and I'll, um, when I put the post up, I'll, I'll put more information so people can get in touch with you. Um, what are you uh, reading right now other than uh, the, the, the Sanskrit that's inspiring you? Right, so uh, website is a good place, and also Instagram uh, mm -hmm. is where I'm really Right, happy. yeah, you do great interviews yourself on, on Instagram Live, and I've enjoyed those a lot. Thank you. And, uh, well, uh, talk about non-duality. I'm reading uh, Aldous Huxley, the perennial, ah. perennial philosophy. Mm -hmm. so that Very is, cool. Uh, yeah, it's a good book. Is that yeah. is that his? Is there any? Is that him under the influence of psychedelics, or is that I just think, him with his uh, unaddled mind? No, he's pretty normal here writing. Uh, he's just comparing all the different philosophy of the world in mm. the dual thing. Yeah, it's, it's a great book. And uh, I think I got bitten by the bug of collecting uh, books. I've been buying a lot of books and mm. I got this one from England all the way, you know, so. That's exciting. Cover, yeah, Huxley is not as, he's yeah. not as well loved in the United States as he, as yeah. he is in the UK. Yeah. You find him everywhere there. Yeah, and uh, they even sent me a little news clipping of him. Like, uh, I don't know where they get them, but uh, he has a, like a, he is in this, I don't know, dandy or whatever you call them, the style. Like he's oh like yeah, a, he's a fascinating dapper. figure, you know, like he's dapper, uh, like all, all suit up, you know. His hat looks like it's about to take over his head in that picture. Yeah. 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 So, um, and then in terms of like, um, are there any artists um, doing work today who, who um, you're looking forward to seeing or that um, you recommend people um, uh, check out? Uh, oh, I couldn't think of it on top of my head right now, so I couldn't okay. really recommend a, a show or something exciting to see. I guess that all these uh, COVID things just uh, put all these uh, art projects mm. like burner. I haven't go out to see a art show over a year, so getting. Uh, but uh, I highly recommended all the podcasts and all the Zoom thing going on online. Those are really intriguing. I've been really enjoying it. You know? mm -hmm, me too. Uh, uh, I've been enjoying a cocktail with a curator from the French oh, right. Museum. Um, super interesting, uh, great presentation, short format, you know, half an hour, 20 minutes. Uh, 
every Friday evening. So things like that that are like uh, sitting at your home, you can see art, you know, doesn't have to go anywhere. So, yeah. That's perfect. That's a great recommendation. It's always good to do podcast to podcast shout out. Um, puts me in, 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 in touch with the community. Um, so is, in terms of what I've asked you, is there anything that you would like to add about your own arts practice or your, um, your, your um, framework of inspiration that keeps you um, connected to making creative work that we haven't touched on that you'd like to share? Yeah, I think I'm in a precipice or whatever. I don't know what was called, like a precipice, a, a cliff. Is that a cliff? a cliff? A cliff, yeah, a cliff between being an artist and being a mystic. Uh, because I see my collection of art, that's how I just, I, I go to my online library, I see how, how much book I have on art and how much book I have on my spiritual practice. Mm. So, so I can see where my interest is in and where I'm like heading. So it's interesting that um, that's something that I just want to put out there since it's a, it's, it's a nice interview and probably it's online and we can, you know, one day I can come back and listen to my own voice. Um, so... So yeah, so it's an interesting time right now, and it's in conjunction with you know COVID things happening, and and just looking at my art practice, how it is come so far, and I'm really mm -hmm. happy of how it developed, and mm -hmm. I hope that it will keep continuing. But if not, my practice definitely switching gear towards those more spiritual practices and stuff like that. But I don't know where that also going to lead me. So mm -hmm. I. I um, I'm just uh, intrigued because like a start of a new project, right? It's like, mm -hmm. I don't know where it's going. It's like this new baby, you know? So I'm like, uh, we'll see, yeah. Well, I, I really thank you for being the first person I interviewed and you were the first person I thought of. And when I thought of doing this podcast, I thought of you because I think you're such an intriguing figure and such a good friend. And um, I think it's interesting, you make beautiful things, but your practice is also so beautiful. And so many people, talk the talk of that they say oh, oh the process is as important as the product but we never see their process they never really reveal it it's sort of some secret sauce that happens in their studio except if you get a studio visit or there's some kind of artist video but i think like your your process has always been so collaborative and sharing that um it's been you know every project you've done has that aspect to it in this really genuine way and um i, I find that so beautiful so i find your practice so beautiful and I and I so I really want to honor that in you and um, and thank you for being here and ask you if you would um, close us out with the closing Veda oh. um, that uh, it, I don't know if it's the same one maybe it's a different one um, so that we have a, a, a ceremonial end to a slightly ceremonial uh, discussion we're going to do it in reverse usually this would be the opening uh, the Purnamindav puna would be the right. closing, but we're going to do reverse because I just did the other one. Okay, well then that's appropriate because this is the opening podcast interview, so you're you're leaving the possibility of future podcasts to uh, happen. I appreciate that optimism. Om Sahana Vavatu Sahana Bunaktu Saharviyam Vavakarahai Tejasvina vadi tamastuma vit vivasvahai. O shanti shanti shantihi. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. It's just my total pleasure talking to you as always. Thank you. Thank you. And, um, and thanks again for being part of this. Uh, 
this process and uh, hopefully it'll be up soon. I'll let you know. Yes. Ciao, take care, be well. Okay. Bye.